Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined... As always, by managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Scott. How you doing, pal? I'm good. <laughs> Our pal, Andrew Keats, is flying into the eye of the Hurricane <laughs> Omicron. Where is it going? I'm Maryland, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was my best impression of Andy, by the way. No. If anyone caught on. No, I, I, I got it. I, <laughs> I even got did it. the little lean he does. <laughs> So coming up on the show this week, we've got a great conversation. It was good, right? It was good, yeah. With new, We were really close to each yeah, other. Yeah, we had to be really close. Uh, we are sharing our aerosols today. Uh, uh, Omicron is around. It's changed everything. We had a great conversation with San Diego City Council President Sean Elo Rivera. He's the new council president. And before he went and got a little rest for the holiday we got him on the record about a lot of things. Uh, taxes, that was an interesting conversation about potential new taxes on the ballot, about homelessness, the role of policing, all these things. Uh, street vending. Street vending, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was interesting how we asked him first, like what, what made him think he wanted to be council president? And I was not ready for him to say he was unsatisfied with the search for the independent budget analyst. Yeah, that, that was, was really interesting. Right? Like kind of, you know, you, you, I guess you don't picture yourself in a leadership position or something until something happens. And You're like, this isn't the way it should be. Yeah. We need to make some moves. It's funny. You and I saw him a couple of weeks ago at the coffee shop. Yeah. Do you think he knew then? I don't know. That he was plotting and he's like, I can't Maybe say Maybe that's why he was like, hey, yeah. how's it going? He was a little shy, right? <laughs> yeah. I think he was probably sitting there like, if I was, I'm, I want to tell him what I'm about yeah. to do. I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> that's good stuff. All right, stay tuned for that. Um, so we'll take a few minutes now though and talk. Uh, but first, we are in the final stretches of our fundraising campaign the last few days to make our goals. We need to raise $250,000 this month. A lot of people have been so generous and supportive right now. So thank you. If you value what we do here, this podcast, these interviews, like what we did with Sean Elo Rivera, like what we did last week with Professor Shane Crotty, the immunologist. A lot of people have been talking about that. Then please support the show, vosd.org slash podcast 2021. We still get those notes in there uh, from people saying they love the podcast. They're interested in the podcast. Let's see if I can find one real quick. There was one last night, I know, uh, 
Uh, here, let's see, let's see, let's see. I love that channel. It's so it's so inspiring. It like is. If right? you're ever down, you just look at that Slack channel, and you're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what she's talking about is is the channel that uh, updates us on your donations and the notes that you put in there for us. So here was Julia Norris. She said, I appreciate a news source that tells us the truth. And I love the podcast. Oh, Julia, we love you too. Thank you so much. It means a lot. No, it really is important to have a connection with the people who, who pay you to know that like, if we're going to have something that is truly independent, that is truly supported by as, as diverse of San Diego as possible. We're gonna have to listen to them. We have to, and also know that that's who we're accountable to the, to everybody yeah. uh, out there. And so thank you for, for showing that again, VOSD.org uh, slash podcast 2021. If you want to show your support, VOSD.org slash podcast 2021. Andrea, do you remember last week when we were on this show and I asked Andy if he knew how the city of San Diego got all of its land at the sports arena area, the land that it owns underneath the sports arena and around it. We own as a city the land under Phil's Barbecue, Dixie Lane Lumber, and the whole parking lot there. Mm, yes, I remember. I and didn't think he knew. No, he right. didn't know. In fact... We probably, I think we may have cut it from the podcast because we don't like to, you know, really. say that we don't know stuff because yeah, exactly. we know everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I found out and it was thanks to your ex-employer, the Union Tribune. Oh. So a few years ago, I decided to get, uh, my wife actually decided to get the paper newspaper in and delivered because we were worried that our kids wouldn't see news, right? Because we weren't watching TV news. Uh, we'd have the radio on sometimes. But we're mostly getting our news from our phones and they're not looking at our phones. So like I grew up looking at headlines that my, my parents would read and stuff. That was a big part of what got me into news. And so I, we did that, right? Mm -hmm. I've talked about that. But the one thing I discovered that I didn't know, and maybe you've known this as a newspaper person for a while, you see a lot more of what the UT does when you read the newspaper yeah. in print. Like it's really easy to miss a lot of what the Union Tribune does when you when you consume it just online yeah yeah that was like my one big thing sometimes because i was writing obviously for the local section and i was like my stories are just fabulous they have the best yeah. pictures but sometimes you would never you just wouldn't see it on the website because right. it would get in, put into the local section and it kind of disappear <laughs> with everything else right because there's so much content being produced that it's like a tunnel right yeah, it's too much and and so i try to force myself to look through the paper paper often and i'm so glad i did the other day because they had one of those from the archive sections where they it was an archive story the union tribune ran in 1944 about the federal government building 3500 homes at what's now sports arena hmm. and so i looked into that and it turns out the city bought that from the federal government and then kicked everybody that was remaining there out oh my gosh so I tweeted that and then Rachel Lang at the mayor's office responded back with a story from 1992 that was in the San Diego Reader. And this blew my mind. Do you mind if I explain yes, for a second? Yes, explain. This, is, this sounds good. Okay, so this was again 1992 in the Reader, a history piece about this development. 
So it used to be that Mission Bay and that San Diego River where it goes into the ocean was all just a big mess, right? So the floods would come in and they would go out. It wasn't organized like it is now. And so over time, the federal government started to build uh, levees to control that. So when the water came in, it would go up the San Diego River floodplain and, and then go back out, right? Now, it didn't work very well for a while. The, the levees would break. They'd repair them, stuff like that. So that area that it would flood, was that's the sports arena area. And so it was just kind of a mess. And, and finally, the federal government got it set, got the levees set, and that was land then that was available to start doing something with. So the federal government during World War II obviously invested tons of money into San Diego as a naval and military hub, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the problems with that is that the people who were working for the military needed places to live. Makes sense. Yeah. And in fact, it was very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And so... They worked really hard, the federal government, to, to get 3,500 units built in this area called Frontier. So Sports Arena, the boulevard, used to be called Frontier. And that was this, like, this development that they built there. Now, we always talk about San Diego as being like a military town. You know, we always do this performative stuff about how much we love the military and all that stuff. Well... I knew this because we came here with the military. My wife was in the military. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's, it's not that really true. Like the people in San Diego have always had uh, a, a not subtle hatred of the military. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, you know, and I think rightly in some cases, like what they did to Balboa Park, like a big park shouldn't have a giant hospital in the middle right. of it, that kind of thing. But also the, you know, but also... There was some really gnarly things about that. So one of the things that became clear, this reader article was thousands of words too long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But it was really interesting because the area of Point Loma and and that surrounding area was part of these neighborhoods that were built up as restricted neighborhoods. And you know what that word means, right? No people of color. Well, yeah, exactly. So uh, no people of color, no Jews, mm-hmm. you know, just keep people. It was it was advertised as a haven restricted from certain types of development and things you don't like about the city. But also, yes, in particular, black people and Mexicans were not desired. Mm-hmm. And it was very explicit. Well, guess who lived in this development that the federal government put together around sports arena, what we see as sports arena now. People of color, predominantly. And the people in Point Loma hated it. They hated it. They, they discriminated wildly against the people who lived there. They wanted it gone from the beginning. They fought it. They just didn't like it. And so over time, they just wore the federal government and the city down to the point where the city purchased that land. And then, get this, this is another interesting aspect of it. The, there had been a boom of housing across San Diego where these, build, these developers had built housing, but they overbuilt. Mm-hmm. And so they were concerned that they couldn't sell or rent out the housing that they had built. And so they pressured the city as well 
as the people in Point Loma to shut this down so that the people who lived there would have to go elsewhere to buy and rent homes. And so the city finally bought that land, fought for years to actually get rid of the people there, and then within a few years built the sports arena that we see now. So when you look at the sports arena now, it is literally like a uh, like a, a levee itself. But you know what it's blocking? It's not blocking water. It's blocking people of color. That is insane. But it's, it makes sense. It does, right? Because of the time. Yeah. But also it's just like, wow. It's very upsetting. And, yeah, very upsetting. And, and, if, and so now you look at the people who are opposing getting rid of the sports arena and it's very hard not to think about that history Mm-hmm. And that to them, the sports arena, it, as they say, well, we're trying to protect our views, our quality of life. The sports arena represents to them not an ugly building with a bad parking lot, but a wall. A levee. Yep. I, I just, I read that. I was just, I was like, I was like disturbed all night long. <laughs> You have to send me that article. I, I will. It's, it's, it's a lot it's of words. Very long. It sounds like it's. We'll put it in the show notes. It, it's. It, I, I understand if you don't. I'm part of me wants to just like write up the interesting parts of it, mm-hmm. so that maybe the headline is like you'll never look at the sports arena the same way again. Yeah, that, I'm just thinking. You know, like I I love going to the Target nearby there. Yeah, and TJ Maxx is like the spot right. around there. So I always, you know, kind of drive past it. And right, and then feel like wow. That area has always had a, like a seedy kind of blighted reputation, yeah. but that's almost like it's almost by design. Like they yeah. didn't want it ever, and so it was always just like keep it away from real Point Loma. Yeah, and and uh, it's it's yeah. I don't think you'll ever look at the sports arena no. the same way again. But also, you know what is also interesting? You know what the basic number of housing units that all of these proposals for the sports arena identify as as what they can build there Mm. 3500 units it's all it's 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 history is just a flat circle all right before we get to the interview the site is i think doing nicely these days voice san diego.org it looks beautiful there's a um there are a lot of stories we've posted this uh, week called what we learned this year so what were we trying to get at with that yeah I mean, we were trying to sum up maybe some of the most like pressing conversations or topics or issues that we've been following and throughout the year and kind of what we've learned from it. Right. What, what's happened, whether there's been solutions. And I think for most of these cases, there hasn't been. But also just taking a step back right from from that normal coverage that we're doing and just looking at it and really seeing, you know, maybe a, a nugget that maybe was interesting to you before but you didn't really get to it and just kind of bigger picture of like well what we learned about this issue or whatever i think what's special about it rather than each of these pieces being just roundups of the year they have all kind of honed in on something so uh andy keats did one about the housing commission and how this year revealed that it needed reform yeah and they started off really good right it's kind of how he starts the story like they were were having a good year but then it was revealed they weren't really (laughs) And then I think uh, we had a piece about the Tijuana River and the border sewage crisis and how I thought, loved how she just honed in on the fact that we are willing as a country to spend money to deal with that problem as long as it's in this country. 
Yeah. So that was good. That was by Mackenzie Elmer. Uh, obviously, uh, remaining good photos from Adriana Heldes on those. And then we'll have one about the 101 Ash Street, uh, and we'll and we'll have a couple others coming out. So check those out at VoiceSanDiego.org. You got any big plans for the holiday? Um, just uh, driving a lot. I feel like I'm stopping at different places, but uh, my family's back in Riverside, so I'm gonna stay here for Christmas Eve. Usually, like in Mexican culture, Christmas Eve is like the big day, and Christmas Day you don't really do anything. So uh, yeah, Christmas Eve, uh, going to my boyfriend's house. We played Loteria. Oh. Have you ever played Loteria? No. It's fun. It's a. It gets when you play with like older Mexican women, it gets intense, especially when they're betting with quarters. Okay, like, what happens? <laughs> it's basically bingo. Okay, right? Like you have different cards, and you kind of got to create a line or something. But usually, you play it, and like you're instead of like little checkers, you use beans or whatever you have available. But you bet uh, quarters or dollars. But people get crazy. Like the first person to make a square around their card or the first person to and and you're betting in different games and it just gets really intense and then like some people play with like two cards and uh yeah it's a, it's oh, that a pretty crazy awesome. game <laughs> but it's fun his family's fun oh maybe we'll do that <laughs> all right this is our interview with president council president sean elo rivera He's been at the city council for a year, so I haven't seen anybody ascend this fast, so we'll see how he does there. We wanted to get him on the record about the city's problems, about his approach to them, what he prioritizes, maybe some of these taxes, homelessness issues, policing, all of those things. So let's get into it. All right, so what do you do you get a new office or like a crown or anything when you when you get this job? <laughs> Definitely not. Um, same office that I think was just crammed into the end of the floor uh, back when Council District 9 was was created. And if there is a crown, uh, either it's yet to be delivered or someone stole it. <laughs> so let, we don't want to focus too much on the politics, but just maybe give us a little bit of background or a taste. At what point did you get the idea that this this would be a chance to take over this leadership spot that you would, and that you would want to do it? I think the, one of the, the, the moments that was probably most kind of in the organizing world, we'd say agitational to me, and not in a, not in a, like a negative way, but just like kind of stirring. Um, I think was related to the, the IBA search process. Um, and so, you know, I, having come from, the outside and organizing and advocacy background where we really did put a lot of uh, trust and importance in the role of the independent budget analyst. I remember being in rooms when I worked at Mid-City Can and while I was with Youth Will, um, where the way the IBA broke down the budget really mattered to us. And not, you know, really wanting to make sure that, that Andrea's replacement was found through a process that was going to instill a similar level of trust in the community. I think that process um, was really the thing that that made me, you know, kind of interested in this in this role, um, and you know, just kind of my my general uh, nerd uh, affection for for governance and and you know, making sure that we're executing on that on that front. Let me follow that up real quick. So, are you are you saying? it wasn't going well or that it wasn't inclusive or that it wasn't seeking the kind of excellence you were searching for? I think for, with respect to the IBA, you know, 
we we heard from folks from the Community Budget Alliance, um, which is a collection of nonprofit organizations and a couple of labor unions that work with community and they called in and they really didn't know what was going on. I had not seen you know, much articulated in terms of what that search process would look like, certainly not articulated to the public. So, you know, I, I, I spoke out, you know, to a certain extent during, you know, a council meeting after the, the, the um, CBA called in about, you know, wanting to make sure, again, that that process was one that the community understood that we as a council had, had kind of shared input on. So, yeah, I, I think it was, look, I, I'm probably going to have a, a, I, I not probably I do have a bias toward ensuring that the folks who are organizing community who are advocating with community understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and you know so there's probably going to always be you know a certain level of difference of opinion between me and my colleagues on that front uh, maybe not but you, you know I, I expect a certain extent but I did think that there could could be some improvements with respect to how the IBA process the hiring process was being run so it was during that process that you felt there was definitely a disconnect just from hearing their feedback on that process. Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to that to what they said when they called in, they didn't they didn't know they didn't you know until the item showed up on the on the agenda to name Jeff Kawar as the interim. You know, they really didn't know what was going on with respect to hiring, and, and yeah, they just didn't know what the process was going to be or how to engage with that and. You know, to be to be honest, there wasn't a ton of conversation as a council in terms of how we collectively were going to help, you know, inform that decision. That's really fascinating. So well, I guess I, we have a lot of questions. Uh, we have a lot of different things we want to go over, but maybe we could start kind of high level with this job. I've seen every council president since they made the change 2004, 2006. And the vast majority of the most recent ones have really, in a way, kind of burned out. I mean, even Todd Gloria, he went on to become mayor, but he had a, you know, he got ousted from the position. Uh, there was uh, Georgette Gomez. She's your predecessor in, in the council district nine seat. She uh, did really well with politics, won the seat, won the council presidency, became chairwoman of MTS. But within like six months, she was out of politics because she, you know, sought other things. I, I guess, why would you want this role? And, and what are you going to, um, are, are you going to, are, are you going to fly close to the sun too? <laughs> and, and your wings melt? Or are you, what are your plans to, to sort of deliver some leadership and, and stability in that role? Well, flying close to the sun and having my wings melt sounds awful. So I'd definitely not like to do that. You know, I will, I'm interested in this and excited about this because I think it's important. I, I, I think that, you know, my job first and foremost remains being the representative for District 9. And I need, I need to remind myself of that. Um, our team is already, you know, consistently reminding ourselves of that. We've done the, the day of the vote, we reminded ourselves of that. So First and foremost, I need to maintain that as, as my focus and our team needs to maintain that as, as our collective focus. But, you know, Scott, I, I really do see this role as being an opportunity to, you know, demonstrate that the council can be strong, that it can be collaborative and that it can be transparent in a way that allows for the body to be the policymaking body that it's, it's meant to be. And so really that's, 
that's what I'm aiming for um, is, is to, you know, uh, unleash the capacity of the, the nine council members who serve, who serve as, as San Diego City Council to ensure that we're making the best decisions that we can, that we're doing that in the most transparent way possible. And in doing so are making, you know, responsible decisions that lead us to the place where I think there's a lot of shared desire to see us go. And, and that's, you know, to become the world-class city that the mayor, uh, myself and other council members often talk about wanting us to be. Well, let's talk about some of the things. I mean, when we walk around the city of San Diego right now, there is some, I, I gotta be honest, there's just a lot of things that are very troublesome. There's, there's just abject poverty and suffering on every corner, every uh, freeway, on-ramp, parks. There's, there's a lot of, um, you know, injustice, there's filth, there's disease, there's, there's fear. There's just a lot of people barely making it. There's a lot of concern. And I think there's just, there, there's a, a sense of hopelessness as well, that the problems are so hard, so big, so sprawling that we can't really do much about them. And I wonder when you look at the list of things we're dealing with, what is the, what is the, the worry or the problem that you prioritize the most uh, among all the things that we're worried about with the city of San Diego? Yeah, well, I mean, first, everything you just said is true. I'm not going to reject any of that. And it bothers me. Um, it bothered me before I was a council member. It bothers me even more now because I feel like I have more responsibility. Um, I will never be okay with people sleeping outside of City Hall um, so long as I'm working here. I hope I will never be okay with that period. But I certainly am not okay with it as someone who's now you know charged with you know helping lead our city. So all of that is real. And the last almost two years now have been brutal, just generally, right? The fabric of our community has been, you know, torn apart in many ways by the isolation that was required to respond to COVID-19. Now the divisiveness over how you know we move forward and get get through this. All of that makes this really, really challenging. So I think, you know, rather than one specific issue, Scott, I think what I want to see us do is one, acknowledge that those problems exist and not be afraid to, to acknowledge them. And two, not run away from some of the more obvious solutions that have been presented to city leaders for a very long time in order to start to address this. So we, we can't pretend like any of this is likely to go away on its own. We can't pretend that it won't require difficult decisions. And we can't pretend that some of those decisions may be politically challenging. So what I want us to do is stare our problems right in the face, acknowledge the solutions that, that exist. And, um, you know, collectively, you know, kind of, hopefully we can hold each other's hands and jump together, you know, into, into that pool of, of, you know, of, difficult work that's going to require um, to address the many things that you just said. But I can't, I couldn't do my the work that I did before being elected here. And I couldn't do this job if I didn't have hope for, you know, things getting better. I just, this, this would not make sense as a line of work. I didn't think things could get better. Let's talk about homelessness. That was one thing that I think both of us mentioned and, and, the mayor's office 
has been repeating and repeated. I saw in KPBS the other day, this kind of statement that it's unacceptable. We cannot allow people to live on the streets, that we can't, uh, as a, for safety reasons, for humanitarian reasons, for, for health reasons, that can't. And, and the implications of that, I think, have been there is a role to force them not to do that. Where are you on the spectrum of the value of law enforcement to make, I guess, people uncomfortable with encamping or with, you know, sleeping on the streets? Like, is there a role to move them along, to force them into shelters that might be available? Or is that something that you would say is, is needs to not happen in any circumstance? So first, I agree that it's unacceptable for, for folks to be sleeping on the street, especially if they don't have any other options or the options that are made available to them don't feel safe. I also would say that accepting that kind of foundational belief that no, that the home is not a street and that people have a right to housing, solving for that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be law enforcement that, that moves them along or gets them to accept help. It's going to require a variety of different approaches, ranging from you know doctors and, and, and medical professionals saying it's unacceptable for you to, to be out here, but doing it in the, the kind way that they know how. People with lived experience talking to folks who are on the streets now saying, I've been there, I understand, but here's how you can you know make things a little bit better. It's about recognizing that there are folks who are preying on people who um, are suffering from addiction and mental health issues who are disguising themselves as part of the unsheltered community. Um, and I have, uh, as someone who's seen family members struggle with dependency issues, I'm, I'm a pretty empathetic and sympathetic person, but you know, those who are preying on people who are at, at that in that struggle that I think we should have little tolerance for. So what that means is that there's so much going on out there, Scott, is that I think that saying that any single tool will will solve this is is unrealistic. Does law enforcement have a role? Yeah, to the extent that when laws are being broken, and that is kind of the last resort. Um, to, to move someone along. But I also know that we're dealing with a lot of broken systems and systems that were not meant to create conditions for folks to succeed. And this is, this is just really, really hard, complicated, multi-layered work um, that's going to require a variety of approaches. But what I am heartened by with the, with the mayor's approach and something that you know, I told him early on and, and I hold true to is so long as I know that we are really trying, I don't expect this to get to be solved right away. That's not realistic. But you know, I, I, I went out there with one of the teams over the summer um, when that really concerted outreach effort happened. That was good work, Scott. Like that, that was really good work. And it was, it was from a variety of angles. It, it's how it needs to be done. That, but that's going to take time. It's going to take resources. And um, so long as we are staying committed to that and uh, doing what we need to do to keep the problem from getting worse by, you know, by allowing, uh, by, by making it easier for folks to stay in their homes. I will never be comfortable with our homelessness uh, crisis, but I, I can kind of 
plow ahead knowing that we're doing what has, you know, we're, we're utilizing best practices and doing what, what we can in the moment um, to make things a bit better. Back when I was at a couple other uh, smaller papers, I think that back then there was a lot of conversation of like, kind of like temporary solutions and every council member had to kind of look at their district and see where they could open up um, a storage facility or something, right? And I think there's one in your district, uh, there's one in District 8. Um, and I'm curious, uh, you know, every neighborhood, every council district is different. And and while they all have homelessness to to some degree, obviously there's other areas that are impacted more than others. Do you see yourself in a position right now um, obviously, as like leading this council, I feel like in the past there there's been, you know, division, whether people want to offer up their districts for these kinds of solutions. Do you see yourself being in a position where you could kind of encourage your colleagues to, you know, open up their districts or kind of take a collaborative approach to some maybe temporary solutions, but that might be effective in helping people? Yeah, you know, I think less as my role as council president and more just as a council member who has struggled with some of these issues, you know, myself. So I think every council district and every, honestly, every resident in the city of San Diego needs to do our part to, to help with this. That doesn't necessarily mean that each tactic that we use should be deployed equally in each, every district. I, I don't know that that is the smartest approach. I, so I think what's, what it needs to start with is this buy-in that we all own responsibility for um, the problem that exists. We need to identify a shared goal of, of ending chronic homelessness. I'd like to see us you know, agree on that. I think that housing is a human right, and I would certainly like to see the, the city you know, take a stand um, on that. And, and, and we, prior to, to the city, to the council president vote, we had begun working with some advocates to, to try to potentially bring a resolution forward for us to take a stand on that front. So, you know, this goes back to my time as a coach, to my time in organizing. I think we need to identify the shared goals. And then once we've identified shared goals, if we're, you know, if we're rowing together, if we're actually committed to, the, to, to those shared goals, it's figuring out which, uh, what work each of us can do in order to, to accomplish that goal. And so for each of our districts, that probably means something a little bit different, but we all have to own part of it. Um, this is this is not council district three's problem. This is not you know three nine four and eight's problem. I mean, obviously, there's folks in the coastal communities who've seen this you know up close and personal as well. We all have to own it um, and and you know share responsibility for solving the problem. You mentioned that you worked and and were part of that. I guess we could call it a surge of outreach that happened this summer. I think led in part by Path San Diego the a city's one of its main homeless outreach contractors. It it has, uh, I think, overwhelmingly been appraised as a successful outreach surge, that there were a lot of people who were connected with services and housing. And I guess my, my main question is, well, first to describe it a little bit more, there were tents set up in strategic locations across downtown mostly, where people were offered all kinds of services, like kind of mini stand down things where they got COVID testing, they got connections to different uh, things that they may need to, to get, get back into the mainstream with, with their documentation, with whatever. And, and also just connections to potential housing opportunities and health needs and, and other things. And it was presented as a, as a, as all these, these 
homeless residents were, were clients almost. They were like, you know, these are our, we're trying to recruit, you know, customers into our system and we're going to treat them as somebody we, we want to bring in that we don't want to just force them in. We don't want to just pretend like they're so desperate that whatever we give them is enough. There was something really special that I've heard about described with this surge. And one thing I just don't understand is why did it stop? Why didn't that not just, why didn't everybody just look at that and say like, this was obviously successful. It obviously got hundreds of people into situations that were better. It it helped a lot of people. And then it was just gone. And I don't know what's happened since then that, that would make it continue. When you look at something like that, is there is there a, a route to that? Well, one of the things they say is, well, all the people that were participating in that had other jobs they had to go back to, and maybe things suffered where they were, you know, when they were pulled away from those things. But I, I just, I, it's, it seems weird to do something so well and then just be like, well, that went well. Maybe someday we'll do that again. Yeah, um, I mean, it was special. It, it, um, and you know, it wasn't just the tents that were set up. It was the teams that were going out there proactively engaging in conversation. And, you know, I, I wrote an op-ed for, the, you know, the, published with The Voice about, you know, this needing to be, this is a moonshot moment is what I refer to it as, in, the, in that we needed to take an all-hands-on-deck approach. I think I've said that in multiple op-eds that I've written with, with The Voice. So I believe wholeheartedly in all of that. And I was super frustrated in the early months of the pandemic that we weren't already planning for how to take the the really important work that was happening in the convention center and use that as kind of an unprecedented opportunity to transition folks off the streets into shelter and then into housing um we had people under the same roof for you know mostly for better but also you know there was you know some drawbacks to that but that created a lot of opportunity and time and again i heard that there was you know a a capacity shortage in terms of the folks who could do the work and Early in the pandemic, that was frustrating. That, I'll be honest, that was frustrating for me because we had mass unemployment. And I was like, how do we have mass unemployment and a shortage of workers? Like those two problems shouldn't exist at the same time. But now we're in a little bit of a different space. And we we know that, you know, filling positions generally throughout um, the economy has been has been challenging. And that work as special and and effective and I think rewarding for the folks who were participating as it was, it was also extremely taxing. And and also, Scott, I think I, from my understanding, we haven't thrown away that model. I think it's, for example, we did a, we did a small, we replicated it to a small extent in District 9. Um, and there was a, a lot of success there as well. Uh, dozens of residents um, connected with with services, some place in housing. So it, it we, we know that it's effective it's resource intensive and it's not so much the money that I think is the barrier right now, but of the, it's, it's the people power to you know get out there and have those conversations. And look, I, when I say that, that's not the end of the conversation. The, the crisis being what it is, which is one that affects, you know, the, the that can, can be the, our ability to respond to it can be the determining factor in whether or not someone survives or not is so important that we we can't there can be no dead end that we hit if we hit a wall we have to figure out either how to climb it or get around it and so you know the capacity issue in terms of, of workforce um, we just need to be more creative 
and figure out ways to fill those spots and support the folks doing the work because it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's physically demanding. It's as you can probably imagine, it's, it, it's got to be emotionally exhausting and it's generally not very rewarding from a financial perspective as well. And so, you know, we, we just need to make sure we're supporting the folks who are doing this work in such a way that they can, you know, they can do it and they can do it in a sustainable fashion where we're not cycling folks in and out, but instead growing a force of people who are going to help us solve, solve the crisis. Let's pivot off that point. I think what you're referencing there is is this phenomenon of of what some people are calling labor shortages or or just the availability of of workforce to perform some duties. I, I think um, one area we saw that recently was when we we examined the state of parks in San Diego and the maintenance of parks and what the city pointed to when we pointed out the the filth, the lack of access, the safety issues, the the inequities, the you know the just the 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 services at parks and and rec centers, it was it's really bad, and especially if we're trying to build a a community where people live closer together without their yards and stuff, we we need to have good parks. It seems like if that's everybody's goal, and the city pointed out that they just were literally struggling hiring people for these jobs. But when you analyze what they're paying, you can kind of see why. It's just, it's, I don't know that I would want to do some of those, obviously some of those jobs for what it was paid. And it seems like a lot of people are re-examining their own circumstances and whether they would do those jobs or whether they can even live in San Diego with those jobs. And so I wonder what you are looking at and what you're thinking about what the city itself is actually doing to address that labor shortage because it seems to be the answer they're pointing to for a lot of things that people are maybe having adverse outcomes in some of the 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 uh, homeless hotels that we've set up the the hotels for them because they can't hire enough support staff to serve them there's just everywhere we point there's like this happening what is the city going to do to address that to yeah. um to you know because it seems like a a weird problem to keep struggling with. There seems like there's answers to it. Yeah. We've run into that issue time and time again from, you know, issues ranging from, as you said, homeless service providers to streetlights, right? So super nuts and bolts city services. And Scott, this goes back to what I said at the beginning of not turning our head away from obvious solutions. I'll be honest, it's super frustrating because we didn't get here overnight. So we took some steps in the previous budget cycle um, to like slowly start to close the gap between city of San Diego and other other localities with respect to pay for a variety of different positions. But this happened. This is a this is the result of a concerted effort to attack public employees as if they were moochers and and, and the people responsible for all of, of San Diego's financial troubles. It's the result of of this faux fiscal conservatism that by we're going to pretend that by by cutting by slashing salaries and we're going to save money knowing full well that that means work will not be done it's going to be deferred and end up being more expensive later or need to be contracted out for a much higher rate than we would pay city employees and that is really frustrating because that, that there's a a fundamental either um lack of ability to do arithmetic or a dishonesty in that approach. And I, I'll be honest, I think it's much more the latter than the former. 
and and that that was the you know the the ideological um, foundation for a lot of, of how San Diego's leadership has has operated for a, a really long time. And so we have to take steps to address that. And that you know I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's going to be politically challenging situations, right? People generally don't love to hear that we're we're offering raises uh, to city employees because of the 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 the, the really really negative. Uh, attacks that were were launched, you know, when I was moving, when I moved to San Diego, and before then, uh, by folks like Carl DeMaio. But you have to just work through that. You have to explain. Look, I understand, right? You, you think that we're you were just handing out money left and right, but the 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 options are uh, we continue to have vacancies in these positions. The work doesn't get done. It becomes more costly. You you remain frustrated, or we do what we need to do. We start to bring city employees up to scale so that we're actually a competitive employer. Um, and, and so, you know, that that can't happen overnight because it didn't uh, the problem didn't wasn't created overnight. It was a year after year after year thing. The mayor did a really important did something really important um, with the, the five year fiscal outlook last month. Um, and when, when it came to us at council a couple of weeks ago by acknowledging that we might have pay raises in, you know, in the next, over the next five years. Right. And the previous mayor just pretended like that wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, one was playing games in terms of negotiations. Two was like acting like the money wasn't going to be there, knowing full well that we were going. To, again, the options were pay our employees right, or have to contract out the work, or continue to allow our infrastructure and and critical services to not not, not uh, be delivered to folks in the way that they expect. Um, and I think we're turning the page on that. It's not it's not going to be easy though. To address some of these issues you and I think others would point to the need for resources for money. As far as I can tell, there are four different major tax increases or different changes to to how we do taxes in San Diego. And I think um, I'd be interested in your take on on which of them you support or which ones you would want to advance. So you already proposed that we should examine the situation with trash collection, that basically the city collects uh, trash without a special fee. If you if you can get it to the curb, that means mostly single-family homes uh, have no-fee trash collection. But if you live in a multi-unit apartment building or condo building, you likely have to pay a private collector to collect that trash. You've, you've I think, proposed that either we do a fee for everybody and collect everybody's trash or we reform it some other way. There's a, there's a potential... Uh, stormwater fee uh, uh, attached to properties uh, based on maybe how much of their surface areas are paved versus can absorb, you know, stormwater. There's a potential parcel tax for parks and libraries. Uh, and then you sit on the Sandag board and there's a, a potential uh, tax on sales taxes to, um, to pay for some transit improvements. Do you support all of them, none of them, some of them, or what? Yeah, well, my position on the people's ordinance is pretty clear. Is that something we, you'll advance? That's yeah, the we, trash tax. We, 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 yeah, we, we plan on, on, I wouldn't call that a trash tax, but um, sorry, it's yeah, sorry. not a trash tax. Um, uh, so it certainly wouldn't be proposed to voters as a, as a trash tax. One, because that's just not a thing, you know, way that we want to move forward with that is simply giving the city the flexibility it needs to provide a 21st century you know, refuse collection system uh, to residents. 
and you know remove the the, pro the prohibition on charging a fee and that includes scott you know not just the you know we, we say single family homes and that that's like a very broad statement but within that that means short-term vacation rentals which we the city has not figured out a way to be able to, to charge for trash collection for and generally they do produce more um, because of folks cycling in and out of those homes. It means the mini dorms that, you know, make my, my constituents in the college area so frustrated. You could throw the biggest rager ever, thousand beer cans, you know, and you put those out on your, you know, out on the street and you're good to go uh, with no additional charge there. Um, and it also means that the accessory dwelling units, um, so, you know, you, which <laughs> the, the uh, you know, we've, we've heard a lot from folks who oppose those, but as we create more housing, we can have a single family lot uh, that has multiple homes on it. And again, they're they're putting their trash out with no charge. And so we need, this was written over hundred years ago. It's a ridiculous way to tie the hands of the city. We we just need to, to, to kind of untie our hands and then we can have a, a grown up conversation about what level of service San Diegans want and how much they're willing to pay. And uh, 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 the fee will be based set on that. With respect to the others, until language is on the ballot, I'm not going to say whether or not I support something because I don't know what I'm supporting, but I support the idea of moving forward with giving voters the option of treating them like grownups and saying, you've identified this problem. Here is a potential solution. Here's how much it costs. Do you want to pay it? Sometimes they, they might say yes, they might say no. I know that stormwater, I was up 5 a.m. this morning and in the South Crest area at 6 a.m. Um, with, with members of my team on, on standby to place sandbags out because we know the exact houses that are going to be flooded um, when it starts to rain because our stormwater system is a joke and uh, our mo our lowest income neighborhoods are generally the most vulnerable. And so do I support moving forward with providing people the option to solve that problem that they know exists? Yes, but again, it'll depend on what the language is as to whether or not I actually support it once it gets there. We, we had to put forward a regional transportation plan. We need to change the way we, we, we move around this city um, for sustainability reasons, but also for lifestyle, uh, for simple quality of life reasons and safety uh, purposes. And I think, that, again, the voters should have a choice as to whether or not they wanna fund uh, that new system. Um, and then as far as parks and libraries, same thing goes there. You've identified a problem you know, at Voice of San Diego through your reporting. Many folks in my district don't need to read the story. They can just walk down to their local park and and tell you, you know, why what, the, the things are not up to up to standard there. Um, our park, our our libraries have, I think, been shamefully under resourced. Uh, we built a beautiful, beautiful downtown library, and <laughs> one of the angriest moments I think since I since I became a council member came after our briefing with. With our, 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 with our library department during the budget season. And I was not mad at, at, the, at the director. Um, I was mad at the fact that she has not been provided the resources she needs to wash the windows of our central library for years. That's unacceptable. We build, you know, like what are supposed to be temples of like, you know, civic participation and, and uh, like really kind of the, the iconic um, structures for what I, thriving American democratic city is, you know, supposed to be. And then we don't even, you know, provide enough resources to wash the freaking windows. That's unacceptable. So I don't know, Scott, if I will support all these things when they end up on the ballot, but I sure as hell believe that we need to be moving forward in such a way that again, treats San Diegans like grownups and says, you say this is a problem. We agree. Here is a potential solution. Here's the cost to that solution. 
do you or do, don't you want to pay that? That's a really simple question to ask. Uh, it's complicated in terms of you know all the, 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 the mechanics of what will and won't end up on the ballot. But I think we just need to start acting like grownups and having grown-up conversations with our constituents. Let me just clarify. So you are the council president. So for three of those, the trash uh, collection reform that you've discussed uh, and potential associated you know, financial reforms, uh, the stormwater and the parks and libraries, those are things you can advance as council president. Will you try to advance those for next year's ballot? Well, a couple of things. So again, and I'm not trying to, to dodge sure. the people's ordinance thing, but there's nothing that we would will do this year that will impose a fee this year. It, it will allow the city to begin a process. So if I was granted a wand that could just repeal the people's ordinance tomorrow, that doesn't mean there would be a fee. We'd have to go through the whole you know fee process, which you're very familiar with. So I just want to make that part clear. No one's getting charged a fee anytime in the in the you know immediate future for you're talking for about traffic. changing the law that prohibits a, a fee. If yeah. You, okay. Yeah. So down the road there could be a fee. That's it's it's allowing for the possibility of a fee. Uh, the other the other ones that you mentioned and just to uh, just to add context to that if it's a fee that people pay whose service they benefit from that doesn't necessarily have to be something that is voted on as a tax. Correct, but there is a process that we have to undergo, right. which is pretty robust and stringent by California law. My like, you know, four most progressive colleagues and I doing some math on the back of a napkin and saying, "How about this?" Right? You know, there's a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. Councilmember K probably wouldn't approve of that process uh, either. So, so I understand the point. It could eventually result in a fee, but again, that's not imminent. The other two that you mentioned with respect to parks and libraries. And stormwater, um, I believe in the committee process. So, you know, as chair of environment committee, we were having conversations about stormwater. The stormwater department was doing their due diligence, and we'll see what they come forward with in terms of, you know, a potential. Uh, if they come forward with a potential ballot measure, they're doing the work right now to figure that out, right? And they're 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 doing that through community outreach. They're doing that um, through a you know continued in depth analysis of the system and what the costs would be for properly funding that. And to my understanding, the parks and library uh, work is being done by community members outside of the city process. And every constituent has the right to, you know, in, in the great state of California, to avail themselves of our um, sometimes wild um, initiative process. And, you know, if folks want to do that, that's, that is their, their right to do. So, Sean, I, I think uh, you and I bumped into a coffee shop earlier and you mentioned my street vending story. And I know this is a topic that's of interest to your constituents in your district because so many people do turn to these kinds of enterprises to survive. Right. Or maybe it's a side hustle or whatever, or maybe it's truly a passion that they, they hope to grow. And so um, uh, my story was about we, we were waiting uh, for an ordinance from Jen Campbell's office to come out and come before the city council. And of course, everything, everything changed really quickly for everyone. And I know that's that's um, going to be pushed back back to committee. So I'm curious, you know, um, why why push it back to committee and uh, why was that important to you? And what do you hope to see out of an, an ordinance or some kind of rules for street vending? Yeah. Um, so uh, first, the decision to um, send it back to committee was really a process 
consideration on, on my part. We had to make a decision about what would, you know, about the docket. We hadn't seen a draft and I was not comfortable putting, you know, something on the agenda without seeing a draft. So that was really just a matter of, of process. Um, I thought the public and the council as a whole, you know, given the importance of this issue, uh, needed the time to see what was, you know, what was going to be put before them, analyze it and, and be ready for that council meeting so that, you know, the best decision possible could be made. So from a very, like that decision was actually very neutral in terms of where I stand on, on street vendors. Look, it's a complicated issue because there, I, I, I love the beach. I go down there and, you know, there, there is a, there are certain spots where it's gotten, it's gotten a little wild, right? Um, we're, we're, we're running, you know, de facto mini malls um, under a canopy and in public spaces, yeah. In public spaces, yeah. And, and, you know, there are health and safety concerns with that just from a, you know, in terms of ability to come and go to maneuver in, the, in case of emergency. I think there's some real concerns there. So I, I don't want to dismiss that. But we also know that, as you said, Andrea, this is, um, you know, some folks' livelihood, right? And they're very committed to it. I think there's some really, really hardworking people who spend their days you know, sweating under the hot sun and, you know, just trying to, to make enough to get by uh, and barely get by at that. And we, you know, need to be conscious of, of the amount of work that they're putting in. Uh, I think we should be no less appreciative of their entrepreneurial spirit than we are of the guy who, you know, um, who does some sort of tech work in his garage. The people we choose to celebrate and demonize with respect to entrepreneurship is always quite interesting to me. Um, and I think we need to be be ready to have that conversation about you know what it what is it really that we're trying to address here by state law this needs to be you know focused pretty squarely on the health and safety uh, concerns that can arise from, from the operations of street vendors and and not from you know economic concerns that doesn't mean that I don't understand why a business owner who's paying rent wouldn't be very frustrated um, with you know someone selling essentially the same merchandise right outside their door. I can only imagine that that would be incredibly frustrating. I also, though, want to make sure that um, we are sticking to the letter of the law as it was written by the state, and and you know whatever we put forward can can with uh, is 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 done done so in such a way that it withstands legal scrutiny on that front as well. So I think it's I think it, this is compl complicated. I think it impacts different districts differently. And for me, again, it was mostly about process and wanting to make sure that the council. Uh, and the public had the time that it needed with the with, with a fully drafted ordinance to to make a, a really good decision uh, when the final vote is is made. All this is about striking a balance, like you said, between protecting public spaces and safety issues and and health issues, uh, and you know protecting the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit, as you described. Um, did the the draft that you saw from uh, Jen Campbell and the and the previous council president was it off on the ideal balance that you would hope for? Did you see something in it that you objected to, or or was it purely one hundred percent that you just wanted it to have a different process? Oh, we didn't see a draft, so there's I can't speak to what's in the draft okay. because we haven't seen it. So yeah, <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, well let me. I, there's a few things I wanted to just go over. Uh, and see if what your thoughts were. 
the mayor has put in motion a process that might lead us to vote once again on the height limit next year uh, for the Midway area. This is a, in response to the lawsuit that successfully, at least for now, argued that that was not that was not legally studied as far as the impacts of raising the height or eliminating the height limit in the Midway area, and then the sports arena process there. What do you think happened with that process, and and do you support what he's doing now to get it back on track? I'll start with the second part of the question. I think that what Mayor Gloria, the way he's proceeding, is the one responsible way to proceed, which is to, um, you know, we're, we're going to play the legal process out, but at the same time, not um, solely depend on that and 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 um, pretend as if things will just, you know, work out and, if, you know, in court. And if they don't, um, you know, we'll be left kind of starting from square one all over again. So I think it's I think it was responsible and smart to to move forward in the way that he's he uh, has proposed. What happened before? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I think you've been equally perplexed as to how like so often the same sort of mistakes can seem to be made. I, it seems, Scott, that there seemed to be a, a priority over being able to, you know, like do a press conference as quickly as possible saying, look at the awesome thing we're doing rather than you know, making sure that the thing was done right. And it wasn't going to be, un, you know, uh, uh, completely unwound um, before, you know, the <laughs> before the, the podcast had aired talking about the great thing that you were trying to promote. So I think we've stepped out of that era. I'm intent on making sure that we don't step back. But, you know, I'll be honest, it's like kind of incredible how often we are like stuck dealing with the same sort of problems. Like I'm staring at it 101 Ash, right? We've got the sports arena thing. And, and to me, the common thread is um, we rushed into, into making a decision because we wanted to be able to promote the splashy thing that we were doing rather than taking the time to perform the due diligence necessary to make a responsible decision. And I, I do think that that stepping out of that era means a cultural shift where folks who ask tough questions and do the due diligence are not demonized as being, you know, sticks in the mud or uh, people who are, are, you know, unwilling to see San Diego move forward, but simply want us to move forward in such a way that's going to actually result in forward progress, not just talk of forward progress. Mm -hmm. Wanted to ask you, there's this um, kind of, well, this plan that emerged from uh, Sandeg that they were thinking about re rethinking their approach to a, a hub, a, a transit hub of some kind that it actually, they had been thinking maybe we put something near the airport with in partnership with the Navy. And it looks like they have now changed their preferred option to dealing with a lot of different problems at once. City Hall, uh, the area around City Hall, which is one of the areas that we're, we shouldn't be very proud of in this city. The, the, um, the Sandag's own transit hub hopes for that area as well and and potential long-term you know major uh, housing issues the the state building that's over there as well do you support at least in concept this idea of 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 a major transit hub in the city hall area and and as a member of sandeg is that something you're going to uh, help advance so i i need to know more about the specifics before i say i specifically support it as a project. I am completely okay with exploring the option though. 
I'm, I'm looking at nothing, including the office that I'm sitting in right now, that I think um, is, is so precious or pristine that we um, shouldn't put it out on the table as an option for, you know, kind of hitting the reset button on this area. You know, apologies to any of those who have a you know deep affinity for um, these beautiful buildings that I'm <laughs> in and, and we're staring at. But, you know, I, I I'm, I'm certainly for exploring that that is an option um, and, and have no no kind of out of hand opposition to, to us thinking about it. All right. One last thing. We're going to, over the next few months, do a lot of work about cost of living in mm-hmm. San Diego. We have the highest uh, water rates. We have the highest power and electricity rates. We have very high fuel costs. And to store and insure and manage an automobile is very expensive here. Uh, the, the, there's so many things that make it hard to live in San Diego. But by far, and the biggest and scariest one of those is housing. And it's, it's something you've been on the forefront of because I think that you're, you're trying to manage this age-old debate that we're going to have and keep having in San Diego about adding new housing versus protecting what people love about San Diego and what they've loved about their neighborhoods. Uh, and you had a, um, uh, an op-ed that you ran with us. Oh, it's such a great platform, by the way, yeah. right? Voice San Diego <laughs> to get these ideas out. You, you talked about needing to balance better the, the push for supply of housing that would come from accessory de- uh, dwelling units and, and needing to protect what people are worried about losing in their neighborhood character. As you look around with the housing debates, it seems like we have tremendous opportunities to build in certain areas of town, maybe more than in other major cities across the state. Uh, but this, this debate's not going to get easier. And in fact, at some point, you mentioned people like Carl Amato. There's going to be leaders who know how to weaponize this argument politically a lot better than they have so far. Um, how are you going to manage that balance between adding housing and and the concerns that people have in their neighborhoods? And and what is your actual take on on do we really need a, a massive infusion of housing supply to address this situation? So yes, we. We do need a massive infusion of housing to address the situation, and we we also know that the housing housing demand is not static. So we need houses today. We need even more to address you know the the um, number of people who will be here in the future. So from a you know kind of basic baseline the starting point, I believe housing is a human right. I believe that we need to make uh, housing safe and affordable for folks. And that's going to require us building more housing. Um, so that's kind of a starting point. I think we can do better in terms of engaging the community. Um, you know, as I as I wrote in the op-ed, uh, I have no illusions that everyone's going to be okay with the idea of new neighbors. That's just very obviously not the case. What I've told folks who had uh, I think legitimate anxiety about what the impacts would be on their neighborhood, whether that means infrastructure or just the kind of general way that it looks, is is that trying to roll back the clock or freeze time is to me a perpetually futile effort. It it doesn't it doesn't work. So even if I agreed with with them wanting to do that of of go back to what the neighborhood looked like when they first moved in or keep things exactly as they are today, I 
wouldn't think that that'd be effective. So what what I try to do in this kind of you know, harkens back to my time as an organizer is what do you want to see in this neighborhood five, five years from now? What are the conditions that you want to see? If you want safety, you want trees, you want you want um, you know plants and and and, and you know a thriving um, sustainable environment. You want neighbors who talk to each other and and know each other. Those are things that we can work toward. And as city leaders, if we understand where it is that folks want to go, what conditions they want to live in, there is opportunity there for us to 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 build more housing and do so in pursuit of that that vision. Scott, it, it's hard to get some folks to move into that conversation about you know that's more forward looking than it is you know, looking toward the past, and some folks just won't go there. Um, but I think we have a we have a moral responsibility and just a, a like a very straightforward responsibility based on on state law to a, a certain extent um, to make sure that you know more housing is built and that it's it's built in, in such a way um, that makes uh, housing more affordable for folks here in san diego council president shawnee lo rivera thanks for taking the time i hope you have a happy holiday so I, I appreciate you too thanks for having me on i was san diego city council president sean Elo rivera Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded on the Wednesday before Christmas in San Diego. If you celebrate Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas. If you're just taking some time off, I hope you get some time to spend with your family. You still have time to join our fundraising campaign. We are really close to our big goal. Please help us get over the finish line at vosd.org slash podcast 2021. Again, VOSD.org slash podcast 2021. Thank you so much. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafana are Voice of San Diego's managing editors. And this show is produced by Nate John and Adam Greenfield. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.